and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I sprayed me in my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. If this is the first time you've listened to the podcast, welcome. We're excited to have you for today's show. If you're here and you've been here before, we appreciate you coming back. So thanks to everybody for listening. A quick summary of what this show is all about. So I get to interview intentional performers. These are actors, athletes, musicians, business executives. We really try to get a diverse group of people with a diverse set of thoughts and beliefs so that they can share how they see the world. And so it's a really fun podcast. We try to go deep with these people to unpack how they see the world currently and how they might be seeing it going forward. So we aim to find out about their journey and we also try to find out what they intentionally do to set their mind to be their best, especially when it comes to performance. And we are just really grateful to all of you for continuing to support the podcast. So thank you. And for those of you that are new, welcome. If you want to help us out at the podcast, there's a really simple way to do so. Go over to patreon.com slash intentional performers. And over there, you can subscribe to the show and give as little as $2 a month and as much as $10 a month. And it really does help us as we continue to build this podcast out. Now to today's guest. So today's guest is a friend of mine. Danny Binstock is somebody that I've known since elementary school. And Danny has always been a busy body, somebody who is doing a million things at once. But as he's gotten older, he's really focused on his craft, which is acting. And Danny was passionate about acting at a young age. I was around him when he was in theater in high school, but he was also a three-sport athlete. He ran cross-country, played ice hockey, and also played lacrosse and did it all very well. Danny is somebody who has always been good at whatever he puts his mind to and is very adept at figuring things out and problem-solving. So Danny is a New York-based actor, originally from the area that I'm from, right outside Washington, D.C., and he's been fortunate to work at all kinds of different theaters across the country, uh, in Los Angeles, in Washington, D.C., and on Broadway. So he has traveled the country on stage and had to give really riveting live performances, and I've been fortunate to see him at the Kennedy Center here in Washington, D.C., and see him in other theaters in the area as well. And Danny is somebody who, A, is a great actor, and B, is really passionate about learning the craft and figuring out how he can be his best 
at the craft of acting. He's also been seen on The Blacklist, Madam Secretary, Blue Bloods, Elementary, uh, so TV shows, and he's also been in independent films. So Danny, as I said, is an actor, um, but he studies it, and he is always thinking about the mental side of acting. So this conversation is catching Danny at a point where he's really starting to break through in his acting career, get more opportunities. He just performed in a play that he was just amazed at the work that went into that play, and he's really proud of the work that he's put in. And when we recorded this episode, uh, he was about to do something at the Kennedy Center the next night. So uh, Danny is somebody who's in the middle of his journey. You can feel it in his voice. You can hear him growing in his confidence. And you can really feel and hear from him that he has a vision for himself that includes bigger things in the future. But he's already had a su- successful career so far. And I know Danny, and I know his perseverance and his grit and his tenacity and his willingness to learn and his curiosity and his passion will all come across, I hope, in this conversation. So this is a conversation that's similar to many other conversations I've had with Danny when he's back home visiting over the holidays. And so I figured this would be the type of conversation that you all would love to listen to. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you my childhood friend, Danny Binstock. Danny Binstock. Hey, hey, hey. This is going to be fun. So I've interviewed a few of my childhood friends that you know. Uh, the great Martin Bahar, mm. who is legendary. now... He's legendary. He's now coaching at Southern yeah. California. And Kellen Coleman, who's also in Los Angeles. Fantastic woman. Um, who you know from your theater days. Yeah. Um, but this is going to be even different than the two of those because while I certainly know those people well, um, I'm not as in contact with the two of them on a regular basis. Martin and I text and, and, and talk basketball, but we often have these conversations when you're home for holidays or for work or for whatever it might be. And you are one of the more interested people when it comes to mentality and mindset around performance. This, your podcast feels like an extension of the conversations you and I have personally. So I'm like, and that, that's the idea of these. So this should be comfortable for the two of us yeah. to riff. Uh, and hopefully everybody will enjoy listening to it. And so right before we started to uh, press record and start this mic, we were having conversations like we usually have. Mm-hmm. So I figured we'd just start there. And I'm sure we'll get into our childhood days when we played in three-on-three basketball tournaments. And you were one of the best athletes I had ever seen until I got to Syracuse University and ran into other types of athletes, yeah. Division One athletes. Um, I, was, we, I was all all heart, not much skill. You were, for those that don't know, Danny was pretty close to the best all-around athlete we had in high school. He's he's blushing. I am. Um, and this actually speaks to Danny, and I was with Danny's mom last night, which is crazy. And she would tell you. She would, <laughs> she, she, <laughs> she would have no issue telling you that. But what <laughs> she told me actually was, Danny was my youngest, and... I had these two older kids and there's a five year difference and Danny decided he wanted to do everything. So I had to drive him to everything, which she did. That, and thank you, mom. I know you're going to listen. So thank you for that. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Jeanette, for taking Danny everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and we'll get into why theater was what really grabbed at you. Um, and <laughs> I just started had an image in my head of you in two casts, uh, double casts on both arms, which maybe we'll get into that story. but <laughs> Probably not. But where I wanted to start was to do a dive into, you said something to me, you're like, and we talked about this on the phone a week ago, which is you've spent seven years really working and for lack of a better word, maybe grinding or or trying to find your way. And uh, in the last couple of months, you've had 
some opportunities come your way that maybe didn't previously. So let's start there and, and let, let's try to unpack that and figure out why that is for you and, and give everybody an idea of what we're talking about when it comes to these opportunities. So uh, about seven years ago, I came, I graduated from the Yale School of Drama, came out of grad school, moved to New York. I had been there previously. I was I was feeling good and I hit the ground running and had good representation and I had some opportunities that I was like, yes, these are, these are the things I want. But, uh, there was still such a desperation in me like that was like, uh, I just, it just reeks of insecurity, right? It, it was not a confidence, right? I felt good about who I was, but I, I was not uh, settled into myself. And so I started auditioning for television stuff in New York City and some movies and some big theater stuff. And I worked. I did. I got to work. I got to work at great theaters all across the country. I got to do a play on Broadway. It was not a success, which is also a huge learning experience. Um, but these these television gigs that I felt were, you know, uh, a stepping stone and, some, and something that I wanted to be doing and something that I felt that I should be doing, both because... I uh, am capable and able and, and deserve it, but also like I, I want to be putting myself out there and uh, to a bigger audience. Can um, you go back to desperation? Because that's a big word. What did desperation feel like for you? Oh, man. So you come out of a place like the Yale School of Drama. Give people some context about Yale because they, they Meryl Streep. There you go. That's your context. <laughs> it's not uh, Yale University. I didn't have to pass a test to get in there, which is a, a very good thing. It is. A, it's the. It's on the campus, but it's a. It's a graduate school. It's its own little little bubble in there, and it's an unbelievably intense three year program of six days a week class. Six days a week. I missed weddings. I missed. I missed weddings that I still get flack for, Eric Eisner. But I, uh, I, you know, miss, missed everything because you're just, it's an intense training program. And if we were to go back a little bit, just to give a little background on your story, you started your college career at Tulane and then transferred to Michigan after one year. And um, you're a social guy. Tulane's a great place for a social guy like you. Yeah. And I remember seeing you at Tulane when Syracuse was in the Final Four, and That's I went right. down to New Orleans. And I get out of a taxi cab, and Danny Binstock, I think, was trying to get into my taxi cab. <laughs> uh, and this was the world, world way before like smartphones, and everyone was so connected. Anyway, but you transferred to Michigan because Michigan had a, a musical theater program, and you wanted to experience that. Yeah, I mean, I think I didn't know totally what I wanted. I knew I wanted to be an actor, and I didn't know where the best place for me to be is. Uh, if I were looking back and were trying to craft my my path, I wouldn't put myself uh, there. At Michigan. At Michigan, because, um, I mean, and it's an unbelievable training program, but it it's not what I needed. What do you think you needed if you were to go back back then? I needed something that was more process oriented. Give me more on that. So, uh, it is whenever you're creating something, a play, a, a, a film, a television show, anything, a painting, you're starting with nothing but questions. 
you start with a blank canvas. So there's no, there's no answers, right? There's no correct way to do it. And I think, uh, uh, a lot of undergraduate conservatory programs feel the pressure to give you the right way to do it. Um, uh, this is the way that will work for you, right? This is how is I, it, this how is you the sell way you. work for you or this is the way it's always been done. Both have the way it's been done based on how I'm going to size you up and say, okay, you're this type of person. Stereotype you. Stereotype is how it would be. I mean, typecasting is what they say in, in the business, but, um, this is what in the past has been successful for guys that look like you, mm. you know? And this is what you need to do. You need to stand, you know, tall and big. And it's not about finding your way and recognizing the the uniqueness of, of you. Um, but that said, they're unbelievable at doing it. Um, I will say that. Um, so I wouldn't have necessarily gone there had I known. But granted, it got me to where I want to be now. Yeah. So let's go back to desperation. So mm. you have finished this intense program at Yale six days a week, missing weddings, working your tail off, learning a ton, I'm sure. Um, and you're now in New York and ready to take on the world. You feel like you've just done the training. What did desperation feel like? If you could describe it in your body, um, I would love to hear that. Yeah, I mean, desperation feels like, okay, I have the weight of of the history of the Yale School of Drama, of the... Uh, of the Meryl Streep's of all the all my you know uh, recently graduated colleagues that like oh they booked a television series they're a series you know he's doing the the Marvel Agents of Shield show like oh man he's set I I have all these friends I have these colleagues that are doing great and all right and I just went to Yale and now I have that that pit in my stomach when I have to prove myself each time. Each time, you know, I'm still, I'm walking into a room where people expect a certain thing from me, but don't know me. And uh, that it's a shallowness of breathing, I mm. think, when, I, when I'm, I'm desperate, right? You, the, when, I'm, when you're at ease, the breath can come in naturally and you can feel it in your feet. You know, you can breathe all the way to your feet. But when you're, when you're desperate, you're, it's just that... Uh, chest breathing, right? Your chest heaves up and down because the breath is not dropping into the body and the body literally oxygenating the blood so you're not calm, you're panicked. Um, and, you know, auditioning is its own skill set that is different than acting, It's which is kind of hard to explain, but when I act in a play or when I act in a television show, I am wearing a costume, I am in a, there's a set, and there is an, a partner, right? And when you go to audition, you are in a office cubicle with a camera about four feet from you, uh, and you're reading the scene with somebody whose l head is looking down at the pages, and you have to pretend that you're in love with this person. <laughs> uh, so it's uh, it's they're not totally commensurate. So auditioning is is a separate skill than acting. And when I was auditioning, I had the desperation to prove that I could act. And it because I couldn't calm myself at the in those moments, it it didn't work. 
the oh man, there's so much to unpack. First of all, you're talking about expectations, comparison, right? Mm-hmm. The guy that's in Marvel. Yeah. Uh, and there's a line comparison is the thievery of joy. Uh, but comparison can also be like a massive motivator. Uh, we had Elton Brand on the podcast, and Elton played in the NBA for like 15 years. Yeah. And Elton said his rookie class, like he was always compared. Oh, what are they doing? Uh, are, are they working out right now? Oh, I, I better work out. So he would use comparison, but comparison can also paralyze uh, and, and be really, really tough. Uh, one of my favorite teachers at Yale, Evan Yanoulis, who, uh, congratulations, Evan, she's about to go take over uh, Juilliard's acting department. She's going to be the head. Kind of she's, a big deal. Yeah, a big fucking deal. <laughs> uh, I once, on a, I was having a rough day at school, and I go to her, I go, Evan, sometimes here it's hard not to feel like you're the caboose and she says Danny that doesn't go away and she's running and she's about to run Julia you know clearly there's no no uh, marker that would describe what what she has achieved as the caboose but that that there's no one there's no thing that takes that away from you and, and and but for you the desperation piece it sounds like really showed itself uh, when you go on auditions. Mm-hmm. Did you ever feel that when you were actually acting? Rarely. Um, when you are when you're not prepared, yes. Um, when you're not, um, and your preparation sometimes is a is a team effort. So. Uh, in the American theater, we are not subsidized by uh, the government. We rehearse oftentimes for three weeks uh, to you know, put on a new play. And at that point, you're making decisions out of fear. And uh, that's when there's a little bit of that desperation. I, then I fall back on my tricks because I know the I've you know I've gotten this far on my on, on like being able to, Please the audience. Yeah, what are tricks? What do you mean by that? Oh, just smiling unnecessarily and charming. like show, showing them how relaxed I am. Yeah, being charming, but it's not specific to this play. It's not specific to this character. It's not specific to this world. It's not the real work. And and this is not a knock, but uh, that is a little bit of what movie stardom is and i think it's we can see when there's a distinction between a movie star and an actor mm-hmm. and often often the two overlap but that's not always the case there are some people that are just have that charisma that charm that uh, that's unbelievable that you just want to be next to them and so we put them on a giant screen and we're like god I, i'll hang out with him for two hours but that's different than somebody that's gonna loot illuminate something about the human condition by getting lost in a in a character man i'm thinking about all the other people that i've chatted to in my life but this podcast has given me the opportunity to chat with so many people and i think that applies in so many areas Mm -hmm. because we were talking about politics before we fired up the mic and i think of a politician like uh you know beto who we just saw like he was able to I'm going to say act, but I don't mean it in a negative way. Mm-hmm. Like he was able to charm or be charismatic. Obama is able to have that charisma. Bill Clinton, you know, there's, there is an element of it. And, and if you compare that with like extreme competence, mm-hmm. like that 
is an amazing mixture. But I think about like George W, like W is just likable. Like you just, you, you, when, regardless of what you thought politically of W, you were always like, I want to go get a beer with that dude. And, and, and his, his success is intoxicating. It, it, it is. I'll ca- I'm going to yeah. slightly counter you yeah, on Beto on. because, the, you know, there's this criticism that he, he ran his campaign too far to the left. He had ev- he had all the money. He had all the Hollywood, all the all the momentum. He could have taken it. He could have taken it, and yet he chose to be authentic. He was authentically himself. And if his authentic self was a little too far to the left, his authentic self happens to be char- charismatic and likable, and uh, you know. So let's talk about authenticity because it's a theme that I've been thinking about. In my mm-hmm. last podcast guest, we just talked about authenticity. Um, and the difference between authenticity and fearlessness, uh, or courageousness, or if you follow Brene Brown, she will talk about vulnerability and courageousness. Mm -hmm. And you have to be vulnerable in order to be courageous. And if you want to be a leader, you have to be courageous, at least a good leader. Yeah. So I should, I should actually preface a good leader has to be courageous. So they have to be vulnerable. And I'm thinking in your world, and I'd love to unpack this with you, like vulnerability, how massive is it? In your world, it's uh, well. the The hardest thing to balance is the fact that vulnerability, that being transparent with your feelings and your emotions, is the job. And yet, in order to get the job, you need to show that time and time again to people who say no thanks. Right. And How then, do you still have? And then you have to. You got sh- burned. Shed that. You got burned every time. Every single time. Now, so you you kind of said about, I think we were talking about authenticity, right? And and confidence. And how does, how can I go into this uh, job interview, audition? You know, they're, they're job interviews. Are you the guy to, to do this? Um, and both feel, I got this. I'm the right man for the job. And... If I don't get it, I don't care. Mm. You know. If how do how do I how do I do both? Because I've got to work my ass off to to get ready. I've got to do the work to to make my case that I'm the guy for the job. And then when I walk out the door, I have to let it go. It it's, and I'm telling you that that is massive. Well, it's three times a week. And when you get the rejection, I imagine like asking girls out for a date and then asking and just being like, Hey, this is me. Like, no, no, no. How do you then ask the next girl? out? How do you keep, how do you keep going? How do you ask the next girl out and believe in your heart that you got it? Yeah. And she's going to say yes. Cause mm-hmm. if, if you don't believe that you have that, then she's going to feel it mm-hmm. and no. Yeah. Oh, of and, course. And, That's what it is. They interested. walk, they walk into the room and they see your. Uh, you're doubting yourself, your insecurity. Now, insecurity is different than vulnerability. Yeah. So that's different. a re- that's a really different thing, right? They don't have to be this one and the same. And what has what has changed about my work in these seven years, and part of the reason I think uh, that these opportunities are coming up is when you go into these audition rooms, you both have to present your idea of the character, and then you have to listen when they say, "Great." I also think this. Mm. Now, I think for seven years, I, I did one of two things. I either internalized that, oh, shit, they think that. 
we we can curse, right? You can say whatever you want. Okay. I Absolutely. Will. I will. You yes. don't have to. Uh, Your mom's going to listen, so keep that in mind. That's but fine. I, she's heard it all this I, Yeah, I, I do it. She's that's seen, how I she's seen heard, you're an actor. This is part of the game. That's how I express myself. Yeah. Um, Be authentic. Yeah. Yeah. That is my <laughs> authentic self. Um, so for two, uh, or for seven years, I did, I think, one of two things. I either, when they had a different idea, thought, oh, shit, I did it wrong. When there is no right, so how can you be wrong? You can't be wrong. They just want to see this. Let's try this. Oh, man, you did that? That didn't work, but it made me think about this. Try this. That is how you build something with from the ground up with a team. So I either did that or I was dutiful to what they were saying. They were saying, great, I like what you're doing, but... um. Make him a little, uh, make him care a little less. And then I would throw the baby out with the bathwater just to show them that I heard what they were saying. And You're I coachable. Would, yeah. And well, no. coachable, but I would lose my, my authenticity. Right. And I would only do uh, what they're asking. Careless. Right. And suddenly the thing that they liked that made them inspired to say be a little careless was gone. So you have to be able to hold multiple spaces. Exactly, exactly. Um, because there's... Um, it's complex. Yeah, a, t- a teacher of mine, we were working on a checkoff play in grad school, which are kind of the things you work on in grad school. What's and a checkoff? What does it mean? Uh, Anton Chekhov is... Oh, okay. uh, yeah. <laughs> I thought it was like check off. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so I know a lot about No, theater. no, no. Go on. No, listen, he, it's, uh, the, he was a Russian playwright. He was a doctor first and a short story writer. Like he's... A, unbelievable storyteller about the human condition. I'm just laughing that I said check off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh but it's not necessarily the entertaining stuff that we that we consume as the you know, that the wide audience consumes. So it is the kind of stuff that you have to work on in grad school because it is just about living life and wanting things deeply and maybe hiding those things when you when they it doesn't serve you to show that hmm. um but we were we were working on it and uh somebody did something that he thought was i would say lazy right that was that was one of their tricks right that uh and he and he got pissed at us and he said the only reason to do these plays is because you're doing them mm. they've been done before they've been done great before I'd, we don't need to do this again, but you are here. And if you don't show up, like you are being irresponsible. That's so cool. And I think about sports. It's like, it's all been done before. Yeah. Uh, what makes it different is the unknown and the surprise. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we can see someone do something differently. And when you ask athletes, superstar athletes, who do you, you know, style your game after and a lot of them will say like well i watch these guys but i'm my own person Mm -hmm. Uh, and they own their own person so even like kobe bryant who people saw michael jordan and it was clear that he watched tons of tape on he didn't admit that he even watched like film on on mj and patterned his game after him until after because he always said i'm my own i'm Mm -hmm. my own man but what you're talking about is really really interesting because 
we often, and I'm sure the typecasting, they're saying be like X or be exactly. like Y. It's, I mean, we talked about this last week on the phone, like Jake Gyllenhaal. It's like, oh, can you just be like Jake Gyllenhaal? And you can watch Jake Gyllenhaal and appreciate him as a jarhead, but you, Danny, if you're going out for a military role, need to be you, Danny, in that space. It will serve, it will serve nobody for me to pe- try and be like Jake Gyllenhaal. If that's what you need, get Jake Gyllenhaal. Exactly. If you if you're interested in what what I'm going to bring to it, then let's dig in. That's so cool. Yeah. So what has transpired for you, and what have you shifted intentionally, or has it just been organic for you, uh, as you think about auditions now and um, how you either prepare or how you set your mind before you get into the room? Well, yeah. So there's a couple. There's a a couple of things with that. And I think one of the things that changed this past year was I got to, I went to Berkeley, California to the Berkeley repertory theater. Shout out to your Bay area. Love Bay area. <laughs> um, and I worked on a play called angels in America. It's a Pulitzer prize winning Tony award winning uh, play written by Tony Kushner. It is, it's two plays. It's, there's a part one and a part two. Um, so it's seven hours of theater. Two separate plays, or do they run so on, together? So on two show days, when you have a matinee and an evening show, we would run them together, and you would take you would get a dinner break. Wow, seven hours of theater. But let's be honest, you've binge watched longer than that. Wait, yeah, I yeah. Well, <laughs> not anymore. Once yeah, you have kids, yeah, binge watching exactly. But there was definitely a time. Yes. Well, I'll actually tell you a funny story. My wife and I, who you know, Robin, yeah. uh, we got a babysitter one night and said we're gonna go to the movie theater and in high school you'd go to the movie theater and you you like sneak into the second show yeah and so you'd watch one show and then so we got like an eight o'clock show at montgomery mall which is the mall we grew up going Mm -hmm. to and uh it was uh crazy rich asians good movie it's fun watch that it was fun yeah and then so now these theaters all, you can't really like just walk in. There's tickets with seats and yeah, you don't yeah, want to yeah. be in someone's seat. And they have an usher there that's greeting you. It's like all fancy and whatnot. And <laughs> this has nothing to do with anything other than it's a good story. <laughs> and so we're like, do we sneak in? Like, <laughs> uh-huh. you know, like we're feeling like we're high school kids again. We got, oh, our kids are sleeping out. You know, they're at my in-laws. So we are free. Like this you is. You got a, a night. This is a night. They serve wine at the theater now. This is great. We got food in the eatery before. It was a good. It was a good night. But this is a big decision. Like, what do you do? Do you just try to sneak in, or do we pay? Like, we probably are adults now. Like, I don't know. It's probably illegal to sneak in. No, it it is. It's actually it's um it's stealing. Oh, stealing. <laughs> yeah. So so I guess my moral compass is, is from high school was not the same as it is today. Well, our, well, you our brains weren't fu- fully formed, so they weren't. And mm. there's still some debate on on that, by the way. Oh. What well, we don't need to go down that slippery slope. But yes, fine. We were gonna steal and we were gonna sneak into the theater, and so my wife has to go to the restroom. So she goes to the restroom after watching Crazy Rich Asians, and there's a guy standing at the outside of the theater looking at tickets. So I'm like, all right, so we're not going to steal. Yeah. Like, that's not, we're not going to be like, oh, tap him on the shoulder and run in. Yeah. But I walk up to him, and he, turns out he's not checking tickets, but I thought this was the right decision. This mm-hmm. was my in-between high school and adult mm-hmm. decision. And I said to him, I go, can I just like, go in to the theater 
He's like, well, do you have a ticket? And I go, well, we just watched Crazy Rich Asians. It was Black Klansman. Uh, mm-hmm. Talk about two different movies. Yes. Uh, and he's like, so you don't have a ticket for this movie? I go, no, but we just saw a different movie. And he's like, no, you got to go buy another ticket. So, <laughs> so we went and bought tickets. So I didn't steal if anyone's coming to arrest me yeah. anytime soon. Um, but Just considered it. That So we did. We binged. That was our version That's of, binge of binging. But back to you. So what I was yeah. curious about, <laughs> sorry, a little off, <laughs> off road there. Um, so the two shows, you, let's, you have the matinee in there. Do they... Are they completely separate shows or do it's someone, a continuation of one story? Oh, so someone sees the matinee and then they want to see the night, the night one. Yeah. But what if it's not a matinee in the evening? They see part one and then that's it. It's like Lord of the Rings. Like they're seeing one and then maybe another time they'll see the second one. Yes. Okay. People could do it weeks later. But, you, the one thing you couldn't do was see part two first. Interesting. Yeah. It wouldn't make sense. No. Okay. Yeah. So there are people there that were there for the matinee and then they go and get dinner and they come see you again. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is seven hours? Seven hours of theater. All right. Unpack all of that for me, please. So it is arguably the best play in the American canon, in the history of American theater. Um, it is... I mean, I used I used to say it is about the fallout from the, the AIDS epidemic, but actually it is about... America, and it is a play in which justice is described as God, and God has left because there is an epidemic that is killing people. So that's what it's about. Uh, if you know, if justice is God, but God has abandoned us, because so it is. It's truly one of the most thrilling days in a theater you could possibly spend but it is heavy lifting um it's heavy lifting for everyone involved to the set designer the the run crew the wardrobe people the costume designer the all the actors the director and what tony kushner this playwright gave us it is i mean it's unbelievable and you were saying earlier that sometimes you have three weeks to learn everything how long did you have to learn this 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 is will always be one of the greatest experiences of my life because we rehearsed for two and a half months mm, so it's now, different the play warrants it you need to you need to and i i know of a story of a of a director who was offered to direct a production of this and they said you can rehearse for five weeks and he said no because he knows he needs it he knew he needed it what about it requires that depth besides the time uh it's a lot of interweaving stories um, you know, a bunch of characters, and it's just, it's a, uh, Tony Kushner in general is a very political uh, writer, but he makes his politics so personal to these characters. So it's, uh, yeah, it, it just requires a huge uh, investment and commitment into what these people believe, which in my case, I was playing a Mormon lawyer uh, coming up in the Reagan administration, so his beliefs were very far from mine. So just wrapping your head around the given circumstances takes a lot of investment, a lot of work, and and it needs its time to breathe. How does empathy play a role in you getting into that role? Well, I'm happy to 
same state my politics, but I am not a Republican. And this man is a uh, was believed in what Reagan was selling, uh, <laughs> uh, selling, uh, you know. And if I, as the actor playing him, judge him for that, it's death. Mm. You you have to be your your character's best lawyer. You have to say, no, he, this is what he believes is right, and this is why these experiences have led him to believe this is right, and this is what he is grappling with, and these are the, you know, you have to invest in these given circumstances. I can't judge him for that. So if I don't have empathy, uh, a teacher once said, you can't, you can't judge anyone then, because you never know you might end up playing someone like them. That's so cool. So you're playing a lawyer, but I love the idea of you have to be that person's best lawyer, because a lawyer's job is not to judge, it's to represent. If you are playing, you know, the villains that we, that are the great villains that we've ever seen, there's a, there's a why. There's a, you know, there, there's the, that scene in the beginning of the movie where they're running. Heath Ledger is who I go to in my mind as Joker. Sure. I don't, I've, I mean, that performance was incredible. That movie was so good. But I actually have only ever seen that movie once. So I don't remember He's what sitting the... sitting at the table. He goes through the library uh, or the bank. They're robbing the bank. He's sitting at the table and you just see like this evil. Yeah. But do, but was there a, a why he became evil? Yeah. In the, I'm sure it was built was. in because it gives Christopher Nolan. He's a really good storyteller. Yeah, you're right. I can't pull it up on the top of my head. My, me neither. The but the point head. is there's yeah. always the like... You know, you see the kid running home to mom, and then, and then you find out that mom was was killed. The and, humanistic and that, side of a exactly. Monster. That's the why I'm I'm then exactly. So you always have to find that. Now, Joe Pitt in Angels in America is not a monster. He's not a villain. He was just a Republican right. that I had to align my beliefs with, and he was somebody that was when I look at every every scene. Every argument with his wife, and and argument with his wife, meanwhile, because he is a closeted gay man. Okay. Uh, he is somebody that, in his heart of hearts, I f- decided was looking for freedom. Mm. So in every moment, I've got to try freedom. And then, so when I boil it down to that, there's nothing to judge. I know what that feels like. I know what it feels like to be, to feel dependent on on people that you don't want to, to want to feel independent, to want to feel free, to, you know, I can, I can it's, do that. It's human. Yeah. Oh, it's so funny. You bring, you're like a culmination of so many of the podcast guests. Culmination. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's really cool. And like one of our podcast guests was Megan Phelps Roper, who mm-hmm. was an ADL concert recipient, which is why you're here. And we'll Shout get out. into that in yeah. a little bit. And Megan was part of the Westboro Baptist Church. Oh my God. And left. Um, and now she travels the country talking about empathy and part of her message is also to have empathy for her family who Mm -hmm. is the Westboro Baptist church and to try to explain that they believe that their job when they hold a sign and I'm not going to repeat the words that they use where God hates and a gay slur, um, or they go protest military people's funerals because they're basically saying, well, yeah, you died because of the actions of our society. I mean, these are. Yeah, it's hard to have empathy for these people. But her, her um, message is that well, my family believes that in the Bible, it says that these things are sins, and 
to love thy neighbor is the most important thing. And so if they're sinning and they're going to go to hell for those sins, to love thy neighbor is to do whatever it takes to let them know that they are sinning and they're going to hell. Yeah. And when she puts it in those words, I, the biggest message that she taught me was that the power of empathy. Now, empathy is a line, and we all have a line, and too much empathy is where you have a Holocaust happen. And sure. there, you know, I, I believe in the power of empathy, but it's fascinating to hear you talk about in your role and in your job as far as what you do having the ability to really get into somebody and their why and, and how they became to be who they are. You need that. What I'm really curious is about how that then impacts you off stage. Um, well, it is different with each one, I would say. Um, and it depends how... Can you go to that one specifically? Cause sure. It's, it's, it's new... It's recent, and then we have this political climate where you stated, hey, I'm a Democrat, I have to play this Republican who has different, sees the world maybe differently than I do. Mm -hmm. How do you come out of that and think about your interactions with people that might not have the same political beliefs that you have? Well, um, early in the run, actually, somebody, I I think uh, they were actually Israeli, so I think they kind of spotted me and they were like oh, i think that guy might be jewish uh and so he was he he found me as i was walking out the stage door and he said uh, hey great job and uh, i have a question was it hard to play a mormon and i said no it was hard to play a reagan republican uh. <laughs> um but i wish i could say that i you know removed all judgment from my life because i have this empathy this need to find empathy for people, but no, of course not. I, that's something I'm going to work towards forever. You know, judgment is such an interesting concept oh, man. Uh, because what I, what I've tried to make sense of it is like, there's a difference between assessing and judging. Mm-hmm. And that distinction is massive for me because I'm like, Oh, I'm judgmental. Like yeah. I judge the person that walks next to me, beside me, behind me, driving my car that today cut me off, you know, judgment throughout and for me, that's been liberating is to say, okay, I'm going to, rather than judge, let's see if I can be really good at assessing. Yeah. Um, and that distinction, because then it allows me to still be, I'm very perceptive and I love to assess. Yeah, and I love yeah, to be like too. a coffee shop. Look. Yeah, like today I was at a, I was nearby at GW University and in a cafe and there were 10 high school kids and they were all sitting there at lunch and none of them had their cell phones out. I was like, great. That's great news. <laughs> Blown away. Yeah. Mind boggling stuff. And so I'm eavesdropping on their conversation. Yeah. And they're talking about basketball and class and, you know, whatever, whatever high school kids talk about. And there was like a good 10 minute stretch where I did not see a phone. And I was just like, you know what? There's hope for, for our future. Yeah. And uh, so that's an assessment. Um, I think I'm just assessing it without placing judgment on it, but maybe I'm judging it and thinking that it's good. Yeah, so, you're judging it. You're just judging it positively. I think so. Yeah, I think you're right. So it's something that I agree. I think how and when is judgment appropriate? Well, the question becomes. Uh, well, uh, nine out of ten times, judgment is a reflection on the judge, judgee, <laughs> yeah, yeah. judgee or judger, judger, judger. not the judge. Yeah, 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 not the judgee. Yes. Okay. Cool. Exactly. So let's let's go back to the whole concept that we were talking about, which is, all right, so you go through this massive ordeal as far as challenging, theatrically difficult, 
and, heavy lifting. And you do good. And do well. I, I, yes, I mean, yes, I can say that. I feel very good about the work that I did. I was working with really talented people, working on the greatest work uh, in the American canon. So, yeah, it was, you know, I ran the, I ran the marathon with ankle weights on. And then I come back to New York City. Almost no one in New York City saw that production, saw my work there, saw that it, that what I work that I felt good about. But I come back and they ask me to read a scene in the TV show. And it's like, oh. This I, is your first audition getting coming back? Actually, yes, the very first audition back. I, uh, you know, I was just running a marathon with ankle weights. Yeah. You want me to sprint 10 yards with nothing? Sure. You know, I, I can play, I can play a lawyer for three minutes on Madam Secretary. Mm. And these were, again, I had had these, uh, auditions previously, but it wasn't anything that anybody saw differently. It was suddenly my confidence in myself. Ah, yes, I know how to do this. I got this work. I know sure, how to do this work. Instead of I've, I have to, or I, mm-hmm. I gotta get it. Yeah. Or uh, yes, certainly, there was no pressure on me to book the first one back. Baseball players talk about the gattas. I gotta get a hit. Mm-hmm. And when they start going over four, then they start going over eight, over twelve, over sixteen, gattas creep in. And so they talk about shifting the gattas to get tos. Uh, I get to take us take a hack. Oh my god! You know. um, uh, my girlfriend and I, Clea, we, a lot of times the auditions, they'll be like, can you just make a tape? There's no, so at home we'll set up a tripod and put an iPhone on it and point a light at us and, and we'll read the audition with each other. It's actually, it's nice. But uh, we used to always say, uh, yeah, no, we'll just bang this out. Yeah. And then we were like, no, let's not just bang it out. Let's do it. Let's, we get to do this today. We get an opportunity to play on whatever it is. Sometimes it's more interesting than others. Uh, but whatever it is, you get to. When you were doing the heavy lifting with the ankle weights, what were you doing to be successful at that? Because I understand how confidence can breed confidence. And anyone that's ever had success know, okay, I had success now. All right, I'm going to go to this and have success. But there was something in you that was either tapped into or that you unlocked to make that audit to crush it at that play. And so I'm curious to just try to unpack <clears throat> how you had the confidence to then uh, be successful. I, I mean, it was doing the work that I that I prepared to do. It was doing the work that I had learned in school. It was not getting caught up in the like, okay, how should I do this? If I'm being totally honest, I didn't know angels in America that well. Hmm. So I had no pre, uh, you know, preconceived notions about how it should be done. Hmm. I, I, I had a little thought in the back of my mind, like, oh, this guy's Mormon. Am I too Semitic looking to, to pull it off? Hmm. But I said, you know what? That's not my decision to make. Hmm. Let me let that go. That doesn't serve me, you know? Man, I I was listening to a podcast with Brene Brown, and for those that don't know Brene Brown, I mean she's a rock star. She wrote this book, Daring Greatly, and oh yes, and, and I know she book. she's a rock star, and she just has a really great way about her that comes across as authentic. Mm-hmm. And she said this in a podcast I was listening to this morning, where she said, you know, 
write down a list of, it could be five people, but the people that you really care about how they care about you, how they see you. Just write it down on like an index card and just list the people that you really care about how they see you. And her point was, none of us have the ability to not care what people think about us. That's just a human quality. Like we all care about what people think about us. The, the key is not to not care. The key is not to care what everyone thinks about us. Mm-hmm. There's a difference. Yeah. And so when you're performing on stage, you should care about how Clea thinks about you. Mm-hmm. Like that should matter to you. And oh, by the way, you should hope that Clea has the relationship with you where she can hold you accountable and say like, yeah, you know what? She's told me. You could have done better. Yeah. Yeah, Like you want those people around you because that's how you can improve, but it shouldn't be more than like a small list. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was such a cool way to think about it because like we said earlier, it's, it's so hard for people, myself included, like putting a podcast together. There's, there's, there's judgment. Mm -hmm. And I think our biggest fear as humans is fear of embarrassment and fear of shame. Yeah. Uh, That underpins everything. And if you realize that like those five, 10 people that are on that index card, there's pretty much nothing you can do that is really going to make them ashamed other than character type of stuff. But Mm -hmm. as far as professionally, you're not going to be able to shame your mom or Clea or or I'll tell you me, like there's nothing you're going to do that. I'm going to be like, Oh, I'm embarrassed to know Danny because he didn't crush it on that show. Yeah. Like, but there might be a critic that's watching at Berkeley who might say, yeah, Danny, he just didn't, he didn't hit it. Yeah. Um, but that person shouldn't be on your card. No, because if I am setting out to please him, I'm probably not going to please myself. So talk to me about acting. And this is one of the most amazing things to me is when you're on stage, you've got lines, you're playing a part yet. Great acting doesn't look like acting. Yeah. How, how do you even like process that? Well, so, uh, it's, it's about, it's, it's a team sport. Hmm. It is a team sport. Acting happens between people. It's not one person doing something. When it's one person doing something, a lot of times like, oh, we're like, wow, that's impressive what they're doing, but we don't feel it. Mm. Uh, when it happens between people, when I'm like locked into a scene partner, and that doesn't mean I have to be staring at them, but like listening to their how their breath is changing and how they're fed up and how they're, all right, okay, that was an opening, and now I can, oh, you, oh, you, you do like what I'm saying oh cool well you know oh well then maybe i don't want to tell you even more whatever it is it's about happening between people and it's it there is a relationship to the audience but you can't be thinking about the relationship to the audience if you're get you know you if you're thinking oh i got a laugh there i promise you you're gonna screw up the next line because you're not in the moment no but if you don't hold when the laugh happens then you're gonna then the audience won't hear the next line and Mm. if the work is good they should be hearing it you know it's being present and anticipating yeah yeah you need both yeah yes but at the same time you need to be it's funny you said um about that that list of the five people caring what they think about you one of the things that really good acting does is uh, you're a character is actively trying to 
change another person's actions. So I guess that's not changing how they think about you, but it's changing another person's actions, right? I'm trying to get you to help me pursue freedom. Mm. If that's what I, you know. Um, and, and feel that. Is, and you said that earlier, like the feel it. Yeah, exactly. Emo- elicit an emotion. Yes, but let the emotion happen. That doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter if I'm happy or sad or ashamed or crying if I'm trying to get you to do this. Okay. When you see somebody trying to do something, you're you're automatically rooting for them. Mm. Uh, this is getting a, a little bit like inside baseball, except inside acting. <laughs> um, no, but it's it's I get it. Yeah, yeah. Like emotion, th- thoughts and feelings, I don't believe we control. Um, if that were the case, I would never have a crazy thought or yeah. I would never feel bad. Yeah. Um, but those primary emotions and those primary thoughts, I don't think we have a lot of control over. We can prime them. Yeah. We can get ourselves ready to try to... to That's part of the work. Yeah. To prime, but... Um, what I've always been interested in is, okay, you've got the primary, how are you interpreting him? And so you were talking about earlier, like the pit in your stomach or feeling a sense of anxiety. Like you didn't want that feeling, but how you interpret that feeling. And there's science that backs this up. When you interpret as anxiety as saying, and you say to yourself, I'm excited, the anxiety tends to shift. Um, or if you are in a situation and you view it as a threat instead of a challenge, uh, our body tends to tense up. Whereas a challenge, we go toward, when we're threatened, we go away. Yeah. So there's very primitive responses, and it goes back to when we were cavemen and how we react to the saber-toothed tiger and, and yada, yada, yada. But um, I, like emotion is one of the more interesting constructs and concepts. And for years, I worked with uh, clients on their mindset, and we worked the mind, worked the mind, worked the mind. And one of the appreciations I have today is that the body speaks as well. And I think about That's literally acting training, like, like <laughs> what you are going to elicit. So Danny's going to be at the Kennedy Center tomorrow in a sold out audience. And there's going to be emotion because mm-hmm. I've gone to this every year and it's like a tissue situation and mm-hmm. you want to cry. Even though I know that that's what's going to be, I'm going to get lost in this moment and just be in it and experience the emotion. What I've come to realize for myself is that I love performance because it is the time when I feel like I'm witnessing something that has most to do with feeling alive. I hope I articulated that the right way. Well, there's, I mean, that's, there's, that's the corollary between sports and theater. Yeah. What does it feel like for you when you're you're on stage? You're in the room with them. Yeah. I mean, as an audience. The other way. When you're, when you're watching a movie, when you're watching... Well, when you're watching a movie, you're not in the room with them. But, but you, can, you can feel it. You can feel the, other, the rest of the audience. Like, we talked about A Star is Born, and we don't need to go right. down that. But, like, when I watched A Star is Born, I was in the room with them. Yeah. I, I, I personally was. And I was there the whole time. And I was... I think awe, the science of awe is fascinating because the science of awe, time slows down. Uh, you're in the moment. You're in the present. Um, and like, I think if I could feel all moments, how many all moments I can feel a day? Like that's oh. how the quality of a day. I mean, and tomorrow I'll be in awe of you, which is going to be fun. There is, there is, uh, 
some people describe God that way. It, it's okay. it's it's linked. That yeah, that's oh, dude, go to the Western Wall and feel the wall. You, yeah. There's an awe, or go to Rome and go yeah, to the Vatican. Vatican. And there's awe-inspiring, mm-hmm. or the Grand Canyon is all, you know, you can feel that that moment in nature. It's yeah, emotion. So for you, you, I, I want to understand how emotion plays when you're in it, because you might feel something. But what if you feel something that's not the role that you are? How do you handle that in the moment? Or are you just so engrossed in the role that you know that the emotion or the thought is the emotion or thought of that person? So it's, uh, yes, I would say yes, it's both. I cannot deny that Danny today is feeling anxious Mm -hmm. because I have to bring Danny to meet Joe. Danny and Joe need to meet somewhere because that's the only, that's who, that's the role. That's it. I mean, that's it. That's the job. And that's who the audience knows as Joe is Danny as Joe. Right. That said, I cannot change what my action is just because I'm feeling, if I'm feeling pissed off, I don't get to stop pursuing freedom. So that's why you have action. So, and I, I mean, I think that would relate a lot to what you what you talk about is because we cannot control those emotions and those thoughts. Right. Right. And sometimes the the I mean, the the worst, you know, stage direction to ever see is he cries. Mm. It's like and then OK, so uh, tears in three, <laughs> two, one is not a thing. That's not a thing we can do. But I can invest in what the character wants so much that I want it that badly. And then when it's when something happens that moves me further away from that, like I feel that that moment of, of pain or that moment of desperation or I've done something that causes me shame. Like I have invest in me feeling that. And some days that results in tears. But when, you're cre- doing, but when you're doing a play for four months, it doesn't result in tears every single time. What's crazy is you literally, your whole being just leaned forward, got into that. You could hear Danny's breath if you're listening it was a little bit of that and you just literally shifted into that more emotional place and you could hear the tone mm-hmm. and you got more alive in that space, which is really, really cool. The other thing I was thinking about is in basketball, they talk about being a star in your role. Mm-hmm. And so Tristan Thompson, when he played for the Cleveland Cavaliers and his job was to rebound and play defense, he would say, I'm going to be a star in my role. And that's kind of similar. It's like, he's going to, he might want to shoot jumpers or you know dribble the ball, but he knows his role is to play defense, hustle, give effort, and I guess kind of like what you were like when you played basketball. It's like just give that effort. That was and, me. That was, <laughs> that was defense and and uh, and be a star in that space and in that place because that's what the team calls for. You know that is that is all of it, and it's not easy. Yeah, because it's. Uh, it's hard sometimes to take the macro out of it because if you're looking at the whole thing, which as a, a, a person who likes to assess, who likes to see what's going on, you're, you're not dealing with your role. I had, a, I had an experience once in my career where I had auditioned for a play uh, and it, it didn't go my way. And then I went and did another play and... Uh, so then now we're two months later and I get a phone call on a Monday and they say, Hey, we have one week left in the run of that play you auditioned for two months ago. And the guy who got the role, uh, has appendicitis 
can you come up and do the rest of the week? This was Monday. They flew me up Tuesday morning. I rehearsed for five hours, and I went on that night. And I, I didn't know all of the lines, and it was a play that took place in an office setting, so we kind of hid the pages around the, around the set, but they, but they also told the audience that this is a new actor, and he doesn't know all the lines, but, you know, this is what you're getting. And it, it was one of the best... Uh, it was uh, one of the strongest performances I've ever given because I could only be concerned with my role. Wow. I had no room... To, to focus on anything else. I could only stay in my lane, right? And I, and talk about being, you know, present and in the moment, I didn't know the play well enough to know what was coming next. So you could so, act. So I could just lock into my partner, throw them the ball of the line that I know, right? And see what they throw back. Man, there's a line there of over-preparation that, <sighs> you, that you've hit on like multiple times where... You know, you can get to a point where you know it's so cold that you're almost robotic, I can imagine. Yeah, that's not that doesn't serve anyone. Nobody wants to see that. Nobody nobody cares about that. You know, and this is like that's like a mindset of that I have that has that has happened to me on occasion. Uh when I auditioned for Yale, I auditioned kind of at the last minute and I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna audition this year and check them out so that next year I'm ready. And I went and I was just checking them out. And they were like, what is this guy? <laughs> you know, I mean, I was not there to try and show them what I had. I was there. And I was like, oh, I'm not really ready for this. So let me just look at them. Let me just see what they've got. And it, it's that all I could do was do what I had because I wasn't desperately trying to show them that. And then another time when I was uh, a play I did here at the Kennedy Center, uh, A View from the Bridge, I played a small role in it, but I understudied the lead, and I uh, went on with an hour and a half's notice. And it was, you know, a character that barely left the, the stage. And it, it's that same thing where it's like, I don't, have the, I don't have the brain wavelength to worry about anything else. So I just, I know the, I know the words... So I just got to enter into the space and and lock into the other people and try and 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 pursue it. And I don't worry about like if the audience laughed at that line, if the audience was moved when I said that big speech, because all I can do is think, you know, how do we get to that next bit? You just stay in your lane. And now I try and trick myself into that mentality a little. How? Uh, by. Uh. I happen to be fortunate that I can learn language pretty quickly, so I, I put it off. I don't learn it too early because then you start to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And once you've figured it out, it's done. You don't need to do it again. You want to figure it out in the moment, right? So I put off learning the lines for an audition until just before the audition hmm. because I, I, I read it long before and I think about what this person is after and you know who where this person lives in my body and what this person wants and what these uh, the, what the obstacles are but I don't f plan it beforehand so the book I'm writing and the framework that has really been 
the framework that I use most with my clients is that your mindset for preparation should be different than your mindset for performance. Oh, man, yes. Humble in preparation, arrogant in performance. Uh, take preparation like it's work, like mm-hmm. put the work in, and then play. Yeah. Right? Be perfectionist in preparation and then be adaptable. And some of these resonate. I've got a ton of them. Uh, I mean, every single one of those feels like exactly the work I want to be doing. And then there's another component to it, which is practice. And so what I've found is a lot of the teams I work with, a lot of the athletes I work with, they practice the preparation mindset. So it's got to be perfect. You have a coach who's going to humble you. Mm -hmm. This is work. You're putting in the work. Mm -hmm. And that's necessary. Yeah. And so is practicing the performance mindset. And the more reps you can get of that performance mindset in practice, you're going to have that arrogance when you need it. And you're going to have built that muscle, that adaptability that you need the play. Like, I don't know why a show is called a play. Do you? Is there, is there a specific reason? I don't know, but I would imagine cause it's your playing. but it is, it is. It's just you play basketball. It's, it's dress up what I do. We play. I do. It's, play. it's, it's just what we dress did up. when we were 10 years old. It's literally it's the same storytelling that children do. You're playing. And unfortunately, children are better at it than you, than adults. I mean, I remember being in seventh grade and we were doing like Huck Finn or something. I don't know. And we were at Seven Locks Elementary School and I just went off script and just played and everyone yeah. loved it. Yeah. And I was like, well, I'm just playing. And they're yeah. like, you're really good. Um, and so like, but playing is like massive. But you, But the problem with the 10 year old is they are limited in capacity because they're limited in knowledge and experience. So the work is, I'm not minimizing the preparation mindset. You need to do all that stuff and you need to practice the performance mind. And the last part for me is you really have to shift. And what I see happen more often than not, I think it's what you're referencing uh, in the beginning parts of your careers. We spend so much time in that preparation mindset that we stay there when we perform. Oh, man. And that's yes. where we get paralyzed. That's where we choke. That's where transitions are really hard for people going from college to pro or high school because they're spending so much time being perfect and they try to be perfect and nothing is perfect. So they can't adapt or they're really humble and they say, oh, I need to get better. I need to get better. Dude, when you're on stage, it ain't about getting better. It's mm-hmm. about execution yeah. and about being, you know, visualization, a great, great tool. Visualize yourself being there. But when you're in it, be in the moment, yes. be in that present space. So the binaries that I'm talking about and the one I'm writing about right now is work and play. And um, it's amazing to me. And this goes into the corporate world. How many people approach their nine to five job as just work, 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 work. And what would it look like if they incorporated play oh, uh, into their workforce? It feels like it feels like the, there should be a like a balance in in all of it in, in for an athlete, right? Like cer- certain practices are are work practices, and certain practices are play practices. And I would like I've seen, and this is where scrimmages happen, right? Like great great teams will say, "All right, let's scrimmage, let's roll the ball out, absolutely, and practice." And oh, by the way, there's a minute left, and you're down by three. Yeah, let's practice that. Right, like time and score, and and you're gonna screw up here, but you're gonna be in it, or you're gonna have success, and you're gonna be in it. So then, when you get in it, and I think musicians are are really good at this, and I I think dress rehearsals, those types of practices are, are really valuable. But you need everything. You also need the perfectionism to say no, it's got to be right. You know? Yeah. You know, it's it's funny. It's it's like a bit of a trope in the theater, but like it always comes together. It always happens because when push comes to shove, even if we're not sure of what, you know, of everything with what we've built, 
you put us in front of an audience and it's like, well, we're going to do it. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to survive here. Right. We're going to do it. And, and it usually ends up being way better than you expect. But if we weren't per perfectionists in the, in the work phase, there's only so far that that success will go. Right. It will only be so good, which is why my two and a half months preparation necessary of for angels in America was one of a kind for me. And it, it created a one of a kind, uh, result. And that work, hard work, ankle weight work, you know, your work at Yale, hard work, ankle weight work allows you to, you know, like in baseball, they have the donut that they put on the bat that's heavier and then they lift it and it's lighter, but the ankle weight work then allows you to then do the audition and say, all right, this is lighter. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean it's not important. It's yeah. lighter. And now I can show up and I've put in the work. Like the work is, is there and now I can, I can act. trust in that. I can trust in that. Yeah. I'm curious for you because speaking of ankle weights, like you spend a lot of time doing strength training and working out as a, you know, working as a personal trainer, mm-hmm. you have a, you know, we were laughing about Danny's sports experience, but this was a guy who ran cross country, played lacrosse, and played ice hockey. Ice hockey. Yeah. Um, and Danny, you know, was the kid growing up. It was wild. I mean, a lot of kids grew up playing three sports, um, but Danny then would go off and do theater and then go do something else. I mean, he was never like not doing something. I'm curious about how maybe we'll work from there and then you'll get into the personal training part, but how your sports experience has impacted you if at all um in your career today i i mean i think that the team aspect of it is uh, what i do is a team sport and i think that gets lost on a lot of people i would have never thought that before today yeah yeah i mean doing a play is a team sport and it's we see all the time like oh that one person that's shining and and that we 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 get impressed by that but that's not the thing that is like Oh God, I was in the room. I was moved by these people, this thing that happened. That's when it really hits home. Um, and yeah, it's cool. Like at the end of a play to get an individual bow, but like it's, what's really cool is to like stand there with your cast and be like, yeah, we did this. That's cool. And the camaraderie that comes with that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is a huge part of it. I think, I I mean, it certainly wasn't articulated to me this young, but uh, that young, but that, work and play aspect of it is um was was there and that is something that has i i love the way you're art- articulating this because this is something that has my experiences have uh just affirmed but and i and i think that came from you know doing basketball practice and then running running sprints at the end or you know running sprints so that when it comes time to play the game, you you just have your legs, and you don't have to think about like, oh, I gotta run harder now. Yeah, I gotta chase. It's like no, you 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 did the work before. Now you gotta respond to what's here, and and then as a personal trainer, you know, you know, for those that don't know Danny, he's, he's what six one. He's that's a little generous. Well, I'm mm-hmm. short, six. so everyone looks yeah. six foot. You know, athletic. Um, and I would imagine without taking any uh, personal training le- lessons or classes or sessions with you that you're pretty damn good at that. And so 
I'm curious about what you've learned from doing that and, and having that experience and what that's been like for you. Well, it is, uh, it's a listening activity, you know, it's what is, what is your client's goal? And then what, uh, how do you get them motivated to do that? And, and then when you're teaching them something new, it's listening to what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. And it's also listening to what they need to be motivated because some people need the, you know, come on, don't quit on me. Don't quit on me. Don't no, no, go, go, go. And some people need the, uh, you know, the, you got it, you got it, you got it. Or the, or the, if you, uh, you know, if you drop the plank, you owe me two pushups. Mm-hmm. Different people need these different things and they need it at different times. So it's a, that's a listening activity, which is just acting. And then my, uh, it's body awareness. It's like you, I, you had said earlier that the that the body talks, and then when I forget what we were talking about, but you were like your body came alive there. I am a, I am in tune with that. I am aware of that in my body. And Presence. Not, yeah, and not everybody is, and so that that's what it is. It's it's how do I how do I move in space, and then how do I teach somebody else that? So more often than not, it's. Uh, you know, a, a very uh, one of the most old school and common and useful uh, exercises is a deadlift, which requires hip flexion. And we, as Americans and American men, we don't we don't get in there. And our you know, yoga is now more ubiquitous. But like prior to that, like there was no awareness of the fact that you had to like send your butt back and so and and there's room in your hips there's room you know in in indian culture there's there's they're squatting to to eat he's squatting right now and i can't you know, do i can't yeah. do what he's doing and the, so they have this this hip mobility that we're that we you don't have because we're we don't do it even a even a catcher is a little a baseball catcher is a little more upright on than, their knees yeah yeah um so so it's about how do I how does somebody feel that in their body and I'll, I'll so I can describe what I feel and then I look and see what they're doing and I say okay you see that but your do you feel how when you uh, send your butt back you can make your torso perpendicular to your shins but if you don't send your butt back your torso is still par- parallel to your shins and that's the difference between a squat and a deadlift. So it's clear that you spent a lot of time learning about it, learning about how to do that well. Yet the whole time that you've been at this acting gig, um, you mentioned motivation. Like how do you get somebody, you know, motivated? Maybe you yell at them, maybe you do this. So what works for you? I mean, there's been, like you said, there's seven years of, um, I'm not, I would use the word rejection, but I don't know if you would use the word rejection, Yeah. but in, in, in your, in your profession, like everybody gets rejected, I would imagine. Like, how do you stay motivated? Um, or how did you stay motivated over that time? It's both celebrating the small victories and also having a community and being in a community where I would say early on I felt jealousy um, but it's not something I really feel anymore because uh, a, a win for a buddy of mine is a win for me 
uh, is, is how I look at that. Uh, a win for Clea, a job that Clea books. I'm like, oh, amazing. I'm going to get to take part in the, the ritual, which is the piece of theater that you're going to create. Like, you know, I, I, I love that. So I think that is part of the motivation. Uh, that was that's part of what kept me going, and just like a desire to to do the work, to you, be the why. Why are you so passionate about doing this work? Well, I think storytelling is the only way we change people's minds. Uh, I think uh, that is, you know, arguments rarely uh, uh, change people people's minds but story you know it's the it's the suddenly you know we have will and grace on tv and suddenly oh yeah gay marriage we should that's a thing that should happen you know it's a and that's like a kind of a not a not even a, qu a quite linear example but because the, you know there what there was other storytelling there was you know, that I think, and that's why I care about it. And, and stories have moved me when I was young in ways I didn't, wasn't totally aware of and in touch with. And there, that feeling you get in the theater when like the lights go down and then all of a sudden it starts like that moved me when I was young. And I just, you wanted... remember a story specifically or a show that, that really moved you from your childhood? I remember I remember seeing Lame Is on Broadway when I was very young and I was like, Oh man, that little kid climbing around the the barricade singing little people, like, man, that kid is lucky. But I just remember the whole experience being um being it being amazing. Now I do remember younger than that, uh, my mom dragging me to uh I think it was Jesus Christ Superstar and me being pissed I had to go. And I because I decided I was pissed when I went, I didn't enjoy myself, but that was all because I had to maintain my front uh, because I was stubborn. Uh, but so I do, I do remember Les Mis just being like odd, being awed by it. And then I remember a play uh, as a Tennessee Williams play, not about nightingales on Broadway. And it was like a big ensemble play about it was it was uh, a prison reform story and it was like oh man there's conditions in that prison it's terrible and, uh, like the, that's you know that is a story still worth telling because we need we need that message out today <laughs> uh and i i that that play has stuck with me you know for, for years and years and years and years and years and years. It's amazing. So when we were growing up, you were really into a show that I was really into, which was Rent. Mm -hmm. And Rent just came here like maybe a year or two ago, and I went and saw it again. And you, know, you see Rent at 13. It's a little different than seeing it in your 30s. Yep. And But my wife and I commented on how relevant it still is. Of course. Um, you know, you take out the AIDS epidemic. There's but, still class war in it. Oh, class, uh, homosexuality. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's still stuff. And I think even though society evolves and, and I think hopefully progresses and I'm an optimist, so I think we do, um, 
human issues are human issues are human mm-hmm. issues. Yeah. And, um, but, but I love how you think about it as storytelling. And I think, you know, rap music would say the same thing about oh, like how they're able to impact society. And, you know, growing up where we grew up and listening to rap music, it gives you insight into an inner city culture. We grew up in the suburbs, like gives you insight into inner city challenges that might be arising between the police or drugs or incarceration or, you know, single motherhood. And, and I think that, and Bruce Springsteen was doing that, you know, it's like, that's the same storytelling. It's storytelling that can break down barriers. And when it's packaged in a way that is also entertaining, and I mean, entertaining, not necessarily happy. It, It could be entertaining, a Star is Born was not necessarily this happy movie, but it was gripping mm-hmm. uh, for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> Danny and I had a long I, conversation. I didn't. About Star is Born. I didn't dislike it. I just thought it was a problematic relationship at the center of it. Yeah, I thought abusive. he was a little abusive. Yeah, I, I thought it wasn't acknowledged. Yeah, well, that's. <laughs> but maybe... I thought there were movie magic moments, and both performances were great. Cool. And what was cool, I saw Lady Gaga interviewed, and it's interesting. She was talking about it being a team sport too. And mm. how grateful she was for Bradley Cooper and the whole cast. And uh, you could feel from her that she got something out of it as a novice. Uh, that was probably something that she really appreciated at this point in her career. Mm-hmm. And I think great performers love being novices and experts and are always trying to find out how they, how they can be a novice again. Um, while still maintaining their expertise. And I think great performers live at the edge of novelty and, and expertise, however that it, shakes out. Absolutely. I mean, that's the goal, because was, as soon as you're an expert, you're done. It's boring. Yeah, it's right? boring. You stop learning. And I look like, at these great golfers who you know shoot in the 70s, and I'm like, oh, that just doesn't look that exciting. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm joking about you that. You know where you're going to put the ball. Yeah, like, well, how fun <laughs> is like that? I like the mystery. Yeah, and then you just screw, like... Your one or two bad shots must like crush you. Whereas for me, like I'll hit a bunch of bad shots, and then that good one is really exciting. Yeah. So I will stay the golfer that I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's the the idea of being a novice and an expert is something that you know I've just had the pleasure of exper- experiencing because I went back to school for executive coaching and uh, got to be a novice again, mm-hmm. and you know think I know everything about sports psychology, and then I go into like this corporate executive coaching world. I'm like, holy crap, like. I can ask a bunch of questions because I don't know the answers to them. And so it's been fun. And it's one of the reasons I I fired up the podcast is because you're teaching me about something that has to do with performance psychology. And I really, I I try to learn, I try to study. And the only way I can learn more is from talking to experts. And so uh, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, And before we, we shut it down, I have a couple more questions that I'm curious about. One is habits, routines, you know, what do you do to keep yourself sharp uh, to make sure that when the phone rings for an audition, you're ready to go? Um, I would say yoga and meditation are are a big part of it. Because, and that's just about making sure I'm physically able to move and that the channels are open to, to allowing feeling. Because if the channels aren't open to allowing feeling... Uh, then I have to manufacture it and then it's going to be fake and everybody's going to know. And the meditation just helps with the, the self-judgmental thoughts, right? Recognizing that those aren't, aren't necessary. So I, I try and stay on those tips and I, you know, some weeks I'm better than others. And, uh, I just allow myself to, uh, 
I try and feel when I need it more and when I need it less. And, and um, I see a lot of theater, which is a, it's been a, it's a huge gift of my life. Uh, it's one of the things that makes me feel rich mm. uh, uh, that I have a, a community of artists that I am a part of. And so I get to see their work. And uh, when you're in a theater and you're an observer, what lens are you observing from? Uh, hopefully just an audience. So you, you don't, you're not like, are you learning? Are you critiquing? Are you just being like, I, I'm curious about that. I think inherently as being part of the community, there is a, a critiquing, but it's not, it's like in the, in the big like cultural criticism of the world, what did it feel? I think a lot of times critics want to tell you what was bad and what was good. And I want to tell you what it felt like. Cool. We talk about it as evaluations versus descriptions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the world needs more descriptions and less evaluations. Yeah, exactly. Evaluations are easy. Like they're, they're, they're really, they're pretty boring. Yeah. Uh, and I find descriptions to be like where the meat lies. Mm -hmm. It's like, you can have a sandwich and the evaluation is the bread and the meat is, is like the descriptions like that. Give me that. Give that, me more of that. Yeah. That is, that is, that's the, the good stuff. Cool. So you like to watch theater, you meditate, uh, you do yoga from a meditation standpoint. Uh, do you have any consistency with it or, um, and is there a specific practice you like to use? You mentioned sort of just observing and, and noticing thought. Um, I go in and out of my consistency and uh, I try and do 20 minutes a day, but I'm certainly, I, I would say actually right now I'm out of, out of practice with that. When I'm doing a play, I try and do five minutes just before curtain. I was going to ask before curtain, can you walk us through that process? I want you to, this actually brings up the first time we really talked about this was eight years ago. I was working with this high school basketball team and their star, their point guard was the star of the theater program in high school. Really? And my man. Yeah, he is a great kid. And he walks into the gym and we're sitting there before practice and I'm talking to him and I'm like, yo, Max, what uh what do you do before you go on stage? He's like, Well, I get there an hour and a half early, uh, we do some breathing exercises. I then get into costume and then they do makeup and then we come together as a group and we do a prayer. It was this whole drawn out process. And I go, Oh Max, like what do you do before a game? He looks at me. He's like, Oh, we stretch layup lines. Layup lines is what I was going to say. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, well, have you ever thought about like doing something intentional to get yourself into the place and the space that you get yourself when you're on stage? And I swear, Danny, his, it was like, whoa. And from that point forward, <laughs> I'd watch him even before practice to get, you know, what we were talking about earlier, like performance line. He would sit there and I could see him doing some breathing. I could see him get himself ready and then practice would start. Um, so yeah, walk me through, and it might be different show to show, but like, totally. what does a routine look like behind the curtain? Um it's different show to show. It's different if it's a musical, if I have to sing. It's different if I have to dance, If how physically involved I am. But I just want to kind of wake up my body a little. So it'll, that'll be like a little yoga to just make sure that the channels are open to receiving. 
you know, and uh, and sometimes I have to warm up the voice to sing. So that'll be singing some scales and doing some like vocal warm ups, and then uh, sometimes it's just a, a a very talky show, and it's a weird thing that. I mean, granted, right now we're talking into a mic that is an inch from our mouth for an hour, and we're not losing our voice, but you have to fill up a theater, and uh, so you have, you have to really project. It's really just about opening up those breathing, uh, opening up your intercostal muscles in between your ribs and making sure you're breathing in that whole torso and not just speaking from your throat, really kind of projecting from your belly. What do you do if your teammate isn't, playing along or you have a teammate that you're not connecting with because I was that was a big takeaway for me is you kept saying it's a team sport and that you rely on that other person and for connection like what what do you do I don't know that I have ever done this but the best advice I've ever been given in for that example he said if you're acting with someone and you feel like they're not listening to you just stop talking They'll turn and they'll look at you, right? If if the scene is such that it's like, I told you not to. Well, I did, but I told you not to, but I did. If you say, I told you not to, but I did, they're going to stop and look at you. I love that. They're going to be like, you you changed it. And the audience experience will not be different. No, it's and actually It more will powerful. be a live moment, mm. right? There's this great line that I'll share, you know, the, the line, you can't lead a horse to water that doesn't want to go. Mm-hmm. And so for years I've said that, and I, I would say that in reference to my clients, I'm like, look, if they don't want to get coached, I can't coach them. Mm-hmm. And I was at a conference once, it was actually Aspen Institute sports conference. It was up the street from where we are now. And this coach, he was an Olympic coach. And he said, so I come home from this job and I walk in the door and I see my dad and my dad's like how'd it go and he's like man I can't lead a horse to water that doesn't want to go and his dad looks at him and he goes yeah but you can make him thirsty oh wow that's great like if I could if I could drop the mic I would and that's like making them thirsty like Mm -hmm. absolutely all right so I can't bring I can't force that person to to feel it yeah but I can make them thirsty. Yeah. And then maybe they feel it. So I take that approach now because I've worked with teams where there are players that are just not into what I do. And I'm accepting of that. And it doesn't mean I don't stop. Like, that's yeah. that's not a me problem. No. Like, I still get to show up and be me. Yeah. And we'll see. And yeah. some of my favorite clients have been the ones where I just stay. I'm like, all right, well, maybe I'll meet them at their locker and have a conversation there. And an hour later, they didn't realize, like, we just kind of had it session yeah and uh this is what i do yeah Uh, but i love that you just create some space and some silence and then you make them thirsty and then there's acting Mm -hmm. that's so cool suddenly they're keyed into you that's that's awesome um okay so we talked about that confidence so you mentioned like you gained this confidence from this play and now and you you felt like you didn't always have confidence matching humility and sort of that mixture. Um, how do you create that confidence going forward for yourself to make sure that when you show up for that audition, you are in the space that you've been in recently? I, I re- remember that I've done great work. 
even if I'm going in for a director that like I know that oh man that last time I auditioned for them two years ago which by the way they probably don't remember I did a shit job like I, I was I was either underprepared or I I I I allowed my fear to make the decisions for me and I didn't do I didn't do a good job like oh man I'm going back to them so if I can, I can think about that shit job I did or I can remember that I've done great work and I remember how I did the great work was by trusting my instincts and you know leaning into the skills that I that I have and and not uh not manufacturing it right trusting that it's going to come if i prepare what you're talking about is to me the mechanics of confidence and so to me there's two pieces there's one humble humble preparation can breed confident performance um so when we humbly prepare we analyze we go through try what could i have done better how we we critique uh the inner critic is not a bad thing it's just a bad thing when we're in the arena yes right like but like you need to be able to look back and say, oh, how could I have done better? What did I learn? What did I improve? And assess without and judgment. Assess and without saying that's who I am. That's yeah. just what I did. There's a difference. Um, and then the second piece, which I think is the piece. So if you ask most performers like what causes confidence, they'll say either preparation, which you've hit on, or past success, which you've hit on. But the other component is the dialogue that we have with ourselves which you've hit on, right? Like, I know this, I know I'm skilled, I know I can, and that dialogue, if you talk to a confident person and a person that has a lot of self-doubt, the dialogue that they have with themselves is very different. And so it's one of the big messages that I always want to share with the world is like, the mechanics of confidence are actually quite simple. Mm -hmm. You know, did you humbly prepare? Have you had past success? Which, by the way, that one's a little tricky because what caused you to have past success? Did you have confidence? Chicken or egg situation. Sure. But if you strip everything down and you just really look at confidence, it comes down to the story that you're telling yourself. And to your point, two years ago, I did a shit job. Or, all right, two years ago, I did that, and I'm better now. Mm -hmm. Right? And now, all right, I'm ready to go. And they don't remember it, so I'm just going to be me, and I'm going to do me, and, and let's go. So that dialogue's different. And... Uh, it's fascinating because I have in-depth conversations with human beings and you want to find out how confident they are. If you can get them into a space to share what that inner dialogue is, that will tell you what you need to know, Yeah, uh, which is fascinating. So I want to finish with speaking of inner dialogue. You have a show here tomorrow night at the Kennedy Center and you've performed at the Kennedy Center and I've been there <laughs> on the side when he did his show, they it was cool. They had like a set of on stage on stage seating, and Danny's yeah. like, "You should get the on stage seating." So we sat on stage, and there's blood involved. It was, it was, uh, there was some some crazy, creepy stuff going on, uh -huh. uh, but it was it was art. And, uh -huh. and so I've seen you in the Kennedy Center. So that's that's one. I think most people don't ever get to perform in the Kennedy Center, and I'm sure that was an amazing experience. And I know it was because we've talked about it. But how do you think about tomorrow night? where you know your mom's going to be there. You know, like I've been telling all of our friends, they got to come see you. What's the dialogue you have with yourself between now and the moment that you're on stage at the Kennedy Center? Yeah, the only, uh, it, back to your list of five people that care about their judgments, the only person that I care about uh, assessing my performance tomorrow night is the person I'm honoring. 
uh, he's in the room, which is rare. I am essentially playing a person who exists, uh, telling a bit of their story. And he's a awesome guy. His name is Derek Black. He was born in uh, into the white nationalist movement. His father was a grand wizard of the KKK, and he through conversations, through being ostracized on his college campus and then being invited into conversations, he slowly began to realize why uh, had had he had doubts. He said, why are my beliefs hurting people? That's not right. And he began to question everything and question everything. And now he speaks out publicly against white nationalist movement and white nationalist beliefs. He's a really fascinating man. And uh, I want to honor him. He's the only person I care about. I won't. I, I'm so happy you're going to be there. I'm so happy my mom's going to be there. But it, they're not who I'm going to be thinking about. I am going to be thinking about him, and that's going to require me to do the work, or that's going to cause me to do the work. And I'm going to try and let go of him being in the room, and it, because because the audience will not be introduced to Derek until after I perform. So until they're introduced to Derek, me, Danny, as Derek, is Derek. That's awesome. Yeah. So what a beautiful place for us to to stop. And um, I want to just give you a megaphone and a platform to promote uh, what you're up to, where people can follow you or learn about the work that you're doing uh, and continue to follow your, your career. Yeah. I mean, I'm in that, that place where I don't know what my next job is and I have... Uh, been doing this long enough that uh, that doesn't frighten me in this moment. I, I, every single time I've not known what my next job is, I've gotten another job, uh, which is uh, a thing that's somewhat unique to, well, I think all gig economy people, but actors in general. But I uh, recently shot, uh, I think just aired an episode of Blue Bloods and an episode of Madam Secretary and recently just shot an episode of Elementary. So, uh, Find me on CBS, uh, and uh, uh, I'm sure uh, next next projects will be coming soon. So I said we were winding down, but you said something that I have to ask about, which is fear. And you mentioned fear throughout. How do you not? How are you not afraid? Um, the the idea that that every time I've felt fear, it's never served me, and every time I've felt, I've, I've and every time I've been. Uh, every time, a, uh, you know, I work in the gig economy, so a, a job always ends. And every time it ends, I don't know what's next. But every time that's happened, I've always found the next one. I don't get to control when that is. So giving up that control uh, is difficult, but it it doesn't serve me to um, to hold on to the fear. The fear's not going to help me find the next job. Cool. All right. Instagram handle? Inst- uh, I think it's at dbinstock. We'll put it in the show notes. We'll okay. look it up. Right. Danny, like, Danny's an Instagrammer. Uh, I think you're on Twitter, but I don't think you're active there. No, I'm not really active on Twitter. Twitter. Not- I am a never Facebooker. You're ne- so you're one of those. No, no. Like You're not You're not there. No, I what is, what never have been. You're, you've never been on. Yeah. The other thing I remember about Danny growing up is like Danny will put a... Uh, like flag in the sand, and then that you're, you're just not going to happen. Well, I'm a Taurus, so I'm stubborn. So am I. But I also, I uh, I also know. I I think I recognized about Facebook. I was like, oh, 
I'll go deep down that hole if I if I even try. Crack okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's like suddenly Danny's living on the, <laughs> on the Bowery, and yeah. yeah. But yeah, that's how quickly it would have happened. So I, I I was just like, no, I'm gonna stay away from that. Do you remember a time when you were a kid where you said that about golf? Yes, I did. You know what's crazy, Danny? What? You influenced me. I can remember you being like, golf's not a sport. I'm not going to play. Oh, man. And I like that. And I said, all right, golf's not a sport. I'm going to And I remember you saying, you know when you remember like random stuff from your childhood? Yeah. I remember you saying that. So I'm going to blame you for the fact that uh, our buddy Drew Carr is a better golfer than yeah, me. Yeah, because he was all far. in. Oh, he man. a lot. Yeah. He's a really good golfer. He's, I hear he's even better now. I hate it. It's yeah. terrible. But, <laughs> but anyway, so I'll blame you for that. All right. So I think we've, we've talked long enough. So I just want to give you um, a, a thank you. And, uh, you know, I've been watching your career and I feel like every time we get back together, you know, we might have a glass of wine and, and have conversation. It's always a joy. And it's been that way as long as I can remember. And you are a deep thinker and someone who is constantly wondering about how you are interacting with the world. And I will call you courageous for following your dream when, you know, others might say that you shouldn't. Mm. And, uh, there is probably judgment that you have faced or felt um, as others might be doing something different career-wise. And I'll tell you guys something about Danny. Is Danny is the type of person that he would have been good at whatever he wanted to do. And I say That's that, very generous. It, but it's just, it's just factual. Um, and so if Danny wanted to go down a different path, he easily could have gone down that path and been successful. And I know acting theater is a challenging path it's very similar to a lot of the athletes like there's just only so many spots mm-hmm. um and there's a lot of people going toward that so i want to just uh tell you that i've always enjoyed watching you go toward the challenge rather than be threatened by it and do so with this passion and this energy and this enthusiasm and it doesn't mean that there are rainy days and sad days and frustrating days all of that yeah. is part of life but from afar and watching you um it's inspiring and so uh, thank you, and I'm so excited to see you tomorrow night. I, I can't even like control my giddiness. And then I'm also excited to see whatever comes next for you. Thanks, and, man. Uh, be one of the people in the audience that can just watch and, and enjoy it. So uh, I am on Twitter at Brian Levinson because I like to tweet. I'm on Instagram, intentional underscore performers. And um, so those are the two places you can find us or find me. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been a pleasure. It's, yeah, this man. has been all kinds of fun. That's a rad conversation. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. It always comes together. It always happens because when push comes to shove, even if we're not sure of what, you know, of everything with what we've built, you put us in front of an audience and it's like, well, we're going to do it. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to survive here, right? We're going to do it. And, and it usually ends up being way better than you expect. But if we weren't per, perfectionists in the, in the work phase, there's only so far that that success will go.